Tonight we're going to talk about the reasons for practicing meditation and for taking up a spiritual path. And it's really wonderful. We've got a whole room full of people who that's what they want to do. <laughs> so, and I, I think I want to begin by just speaking of the relationship between meditation and a spiritual path. Because there may be some people here that uh, you're primarily here because of the meditation, and you're not quite yet at the point of thinking of it in terms of a spiritual path or thinking of yourself in term, as a person on a spiritual path. Meditation is a very powerful practice. It does so many wonderful things. And we can talk about all the reasons why you might choose to learn to meditate, practice meditation, make that a part of your life. There's many good reasons for that. But it was never meditation was never intended to be a standalone, really. I mean, it can to a certain point. It does all kinds of wonderful things. But it's always meant to be uh, part of a larger practice that includes uh, ethics and virtue and also includes uh, wisdom, understanding. And so since we're going to talk about the reasons for somebody embarking upon this kind of a path in their life, then I think part of that needs to part of that needs to address the way that these three things work together and why they're not a standalone kind of thing. And I I I feel like people are okay with the wisdom part of it. It's uh, philosophy, psychology, you know, some people are into that sort of thing more than others. Some people may find it too heady and intellectual, but other people absolutely love it. But nobody really minds it too much. But when you start talking about virtue, morality, ethics, it actually, some people are not all that comfortable with that. So why don't we start there? <laughs> yeah. Julie Dasa, is, is, am I correct in thinking that this is like the first of this educational series that we're going to... Yes, that's what this on? is. So this is the first evening. This Which is, is why you're starting where you that's are. That's why we're starting with the beginning. There may not be some people that were here last time. That's true. And yes. So perhaps I'll address that. That's good. Yes, we we we're, we decided that it would really be good to follow a structure. And so there is a... Uh, so we've developed a sort of a curriculum... Uh, that may be a daunting word to use for something that we get together to talk about every Thursday night. But nevertheless, in other words, a, a, a structured way of going through 
the kind of material that uh, we talk about that integrates uh, meditation into life and into spiritual practice. And so then, this is the very first. This is the very first in that series. Now, um, maybe someone can help me with this. I know there's a place on the internet where this curriculum has been posted and made available. Um, yeah, I have it right here. Oh, on the internet. Yeah. No, this this is what what we received if we were on the mailing list. Oh, that's what you okay. okay. So is it not a Dharma treasure? I, I think it should be on the Dharma Treasure it should website. Be. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. yeah. Is it George? Um I haven't received anything okay. for that. All right. Well, okay. We might be. We we might not have gotten that part together yet. Everybody is very busy, so things. Now, this is an email that you receive if you write yeah. your name on um, yeah. on a, on a uh, in a book up front, and you want to be on our mailing list. But the idea is to 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 post this. So that you'll know what we're talking about in it, and also uh, so that if you can't come any particular evening, uh, of course the recordings will be posted on the website. But any other materials that we end up generating as a part of this will also be available there. So the idea is to uh, is, is it's basically just to have a structure within which to see how all of these pieces fit together. I mean, even the question and answer session we had earlier this evening, um, there were a lot of different pieces there, but they all fit together. They're all part of a bigger picture. And uh, I think that's something that's been a little bit missing in the way we've approached this in the past, is uh, a way for people to understand how the pieces fit together in the larger picture. Okay? Yeah, so that's what we're starting with. It's the first, first in a series of discussions that the topics of which are, are structured. So, <clears throat> is, is any questions about that? Everybody clear on that? Okay. Well, I want to go ahead and address this question of uh, what in Buddhism is called virtue. Yeah, and. I want to, first of all, I want to start out by distinguishing it from morality and ethics. Morality is generally, uh, it's a set of rules that people follow, and they usually have been derived from some higher power that has ordained what is right and what is wrong. Probably most of you have had occasion in your life to reflect that what is right and what is wrong isn't necessarily self-evident. And most human cultures have relied on some sort of received uh, received knowledge, some received moral directions that define for them what is right and what is wrong. That's what a morality is. Buddhism is not drawing upon any kind of 
uh, Ten Commandments or any other similar sort of uh, dispensation of rightness and wrongness from some higher power who is wise enough to know the difference and uh, who stands in judgment over people according to how they behave. So in that sense, Buddhist wisdom is not the practice of morality. It corresponds to morality because the things that Buddhists do because they are wholesome and virtuous are pretty much the same things that other people do because they are moral. But it's different in its basis, if you know what I mean. It's also not an ethics. Now, an ethics is something that comes from logic, from thinking, from analyzing. Oh boy, we've got a whole bunch of people living together. Things will probably work better if we don't take each other's stuff. Probably work better if we don't attack each other and kill each other, things like that. So ethics comes to a lot of similar conclusions to morality, but it's arriving there by a different route. It's the the starting point of ethics is basically it, it, it's it's practical, pragmatic, and functional. What kind of rules can we set up that if everybody follows them, will make things work best? And that's also not the point behind the Buddhist practice of virtue. But can you see the difference between ethics and morality? Understand that? So it's a logical set of rules, and they work, and they're wonderful. And atheists and anybody else can agree to follow a set of ethics. Legal ethics, and medical ethics, and social ethics, and all kinds of ethics. And, of course, the other thing about ethics is uh, uh, they're a little more pliable than morality. Uh, gods don't often revisit to tweak the rules that they've set. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's up to us to figure out how they apply to new situations. But uh, ethics being based on logic that when new situations arrive, arise and as things change, they can be uh, revisited and re-examined. Now, so what, what, as a spiritual path, Buddhists practice is called virtue basically to distinguish it from morality and ethics. And Virtue is something that is practiced for its own sake. Not for the sake of making everybody else get along better. Not for the sake of being rewarded or punished by a deity or something like that. It's practiced for its own sake. For its own... Uh, what it has to offer you if you succeed in becoming a virtuous person. So you practice virtue. Basically you practice virtue in order to become a virtuous person. And of course, that has all kinds of benefits. But if we look at what the Buddha taught, uh, there is something that we could regard as a moral principle, although it doesn't come from any divinity. It's something that 
in a sense, it's a moral principle. I think everybody can just agree on. It's self-evident if you actually examine things. Which is that there's a lot of misery in the world and it's not going to change. It's not going to change no matter what anybody does because as long as there are sentient beings, they're going to suffer. It's a part of their being sentient beings. So the moral principle is, since well, since life's already like this, don't add to it if you can possibly avoid it. That's basically ahimsa, harmlessness. Um, now, in one sense, harmlessness could be thought of as uh, as a moral dictum that anything you do that causes harm to anybody else is is bad. But in, in, uh, in Buddhism, that's not what it means. It means don't do any unnecessary harm. You're going to do harm no matter what. Get over it. To live, to eat, to breathe, everything uh, has an impact on other beings and there's going to be suffering that comes from it. So the idea is to try to live your life in such a way that you don't add to that in any way that you can avoid. And that's, pre that's pretty much it. That, that sums it up right there. Don't do anything that you can avoid doing that's going to create more harm, suffering in the world than is going to be there anyway. Of course, you can stay, take this a step further, and you do need to take this a step further, and say, don't do anything that or, or don't fail to do something that might actually reduce the amount of harm and suffering in the world. That's the other thing that we can do. And so the, the practice of virtue then uses this as its guideline. How do we figure out what to do? Well, we've got some standards to go by. They are... Uh, the, the first of them is to not destroy or harm sentient beings to the degree that you can avoid it. But the other thing about this rule is it's not an absolute. It's not, there's nobody going to judge you if you destroy or harm living beings. But you have to decide for yourself whether it's something that you can avoid or not. Sometimes it's unavoidable. Sometimes you make the choice not, not to avoid it. But if you practice virtue, and that's what I remember I said it was a practice. If you practice virtue, it means you go through your life, whatever you're doing, thinking, okay, what effect is this going to have? And am I going to do it or not? And in making that decision, instead of just saying, well, uh, I'll get what I want if I do this, and I won't if I don't, you're also looking to see, is, is this thing that I'm going to do? going to contribute in any way to creating more suffering in the world than there needs to be. And the flip side, of course, is those things that you can do to even further decrease the amount of suffering in the world. So that's the first precept. The second precept is to not take what's not freely given. That's a pretty straightforward application of this. When you take things away from somebody else, then they suffer deprivation. And uh, it fits really well with ethics. 
you know, for us to all live together, it works best if we respect each other's property and it fits well with morals. Uh, those who follow the commandment, thou shalt not steal, are going to be quite satisfied with us if we, if we don't take what's not freely given. So it all works really well. Don't engage in sexual misconduct. All of the different ways that we can cause unnecessary suffering to other people through our uh, through our sexual interactions and even beyond that to our interpersonal action interactions in every other way as well. And uh, not to use wrong speech, which is false speech, harsh speech, speech that is hurtful, divisive speech, speech that sets people uh, against each other, and idle speech and gossip, in other words, entertaining yourself at the expense of other people's life and stories. So these are all these are the main fundamental principles of the practice of virtue. But what makes it a virtue is the kind of person that it makes you. And that's the reason you practice it. It makes you a person who ceases to do things through the compulsions of desire and aversion. And it makes you a person who ceases to act selfishly out of the attitude that, that, well, I have to look after myself. I have to look out for number one. I need it. I want it. So on and so forth. It makes you the kind of person inside yourself that will sleep better at night, enjoy life more, be happier, It makes you the kind of person who will be more successful in your meditation. You reach a certain point in your meditation, and if you haven't done this, your meditation is going to kind of hit up against the wall. You're going to sit down to meditate. Oh, great, I've been meditating for years. It's wonderful. I'll sit down and have another great meditation. And instead, it just, you know, you jerk and you twitch and you feel itchy and crawly and you don't like it and you don't want to meditate anymore. And believe it or not, that's because in your mind, this part of you, put it this way, your mind's not really happy with the kind of person it's part of. <laughs> and of course, practicing virtue makes you into the kind of person who can achieve awakening and enlightenment which is the ultimate goal of the path. So, it's very important not to just think in terms of, well, I'm going to meditate and handle my stress better and think clearer and concentrate better and have fewer problems and overcome, you know, through mindfulness, I'll overcome some of my neurotic tendencies and so on and so forth because that's only going to work up to a certain point. And it's going to leave really big gaps. If you undertake the practice of virtue, and it's a practice, and it's not a set of, of rules that you follow. Those precepts are not a set of rules that you follow. Absolutely not. If it was a set of rules, somebody else could look at you and say, well, you didn't, you didn't do that right. 
It's a practice. You have to look inside your own mind, look inside your own heart, and decide, what am I going to do right now? Why am I doing it? And it's a practice where you will make mistakes. And mistakes are allowed. They're part of the process. Because mistakes are how you learn. So, so if you practice virtue, though, and the sooner you begin the practice of virtue, the better everything in your life is going to go. You're going, as I said, you're going to sleep better. You know, if you practice, if, if you practice these rules with it in mind not to cause any unnecessary harm to yourself or to others, you're going to have so much more peace of mind. But not only that, we're all interconnected. Everything you think and say and do affects the people around you. And, of course, the people around you who are affected by that respond to it, respond and react. And so, how you are treated by everyone else around you is actually going to be a result of how you behave. If you become a more virtuous person, then you are reacted and responded to in a completely different way. And we all know that, right? And how, how many people in the world take that to heart? I think probably everyone knows that. But it's not something that we usually realize that well, all I have to do is to change some of my bad habits of how I speak about other people and to other people, my attitudes towards other people's property, um, how my various behaviors, sexual and otherwise, impact on other people. That if, that if you take, if you take that into account and change your behavior on the basis of the impact it has, your life's going to get better right away, immediately. People will trust you more, respect you more, like you more, be more willing to help you when you've got a problem, be less willing to uh, try to smash you when you get in their way, all kinds of things like that. So it's good. It, that's where it's good in the beginning. It's good in the middle when, yeah, if you practice virtue over a period of time, you will change initially. It's a it's a struggle. It will get easier. You'll become a kind of person who thinks in a different way, thinks about other people and thinks about yourself in a different way. When you reach that stage in meditation, you'll go right through it and you'll zoom ahead. And you'll become the kind of person who can uh, achieve the ultimate rewards of meditation practice, that ultimate awakening. Uh, you're much more likely to and much more easily. And by the way, that's one thing I'll say. That's something that everybody in this room can do. It's what the Buddha offered when he taught people this path. It was the opportunity for absolutely anyone who was willing to, and that's really the only thing that's required, is you have to be willing. But anybody who's willing to can achieve awakening. But if you start practicing virtue, you'll find out willing to means changing yourself. Willing to means 
confronting yourself in all kinds of little ways every day, all day long. But the point is that there's rewards, and the reward isn't just that if you practice virtue, someday you'll become enlightened. The rewards will start immediately. So, think of th take that as a practice together with meditation. Everybody in this room is, has some interest in meditation. We wouldn't be here. Many people in this room have a serious long-term meditation pro uh, practice. And then, of course, there's, there's all kinds of people in between. So since we're all going to undertake meditation as a practice, make the practice of virtue in your daily life uh, a part of that. And you will, you'll succeed more quickly and be more effective. So let me invite any questions or comments about what I've said. Yes? This sounds kind of but there seems just in the same way you said there's there's always going to be suffering and the world's not going to change. There's there's also, always going to be room for improvement, and in our in our virtuous practice, I, I try to be kind, and every day I come up against ways in which there's room for improvement, mm -hmm. and this bothers me because it doesn't seem like I'm making any forward motion on that sort of thing. So I'm sitting around saying, how much is enough? Do I have to wait until I, you know, have this flashbulb moment of, oh gosh, now I'm enlightened. I'm finally virtuous enough. It must, that must be how I can tell. There's no evidence base. Doing the best you can isn't enough. Well, are, are you asking about some place when I practiced virtue enough, now I'm done? Almost. Yeah, okay. almost. It's well, more it's more like there is no done, so so Well theoretically there is. You practice virtue until you become a a Buddha. What is a Buddha? Well, in terms of Buddha, a, a Buddha is somebody whose virtue is so perfect that they just automatically do the right thing no matter what. You never have to think about it. Like I said, room for improvement. Yeah. So, yeah, hey, so you're absolutely right. And it's simple. Until you become a Buddha, you just keep improving. Yeah. But, but what's, you, you act like that's not a good thing. It's, it's... It, the only reason a Buddha doesn't keep improving is because he can't. He would have. <laughs> 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 well, let's just say that I've been seduced by previous commentaries that you have held, that this is all amenable to an evidence-based approach. There's some, you know, and you're even saying it now, your life's going to begin to show improvement immediately. If you, if you pick up this habit of being, then, then the sun will come out and birds will sing and, and people will, will recognize you for the wonderful human person you are. And, and Okay, it, I don't see, I guess, you know, 
I'm way more than OCD. I'm CDO. I put the letters in alphabetical order the way they should be. And I want, I want a ruler here. Well, you, you actually have a ruler. I, I don't see it as being a, a, a problem. I'm not sure why you do. Um, it, 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 is, it is a practice, and you're always moving towards perfection. You, you, you can always perfect it a little more. And there is a standard that you can measure it against. And when you screw when up... When somebody gets mad at you, mm -hmm. they, got, they most likely got mad at you because you hurt them in some way. Mm -hmm. And so if you can figure out how you hurt them and say, well, is there some way... I mean, you had a reason for whatever you did. Mm -hmm. You can examine that and it, it, it might have been a very good reason. But it's still, it's an opportunity to figure out if you could have accomplished the same goal in some way without hurting that person. But then it's also way too late. They're, they're limping no, and bleeding. Not. No, it's not, because you're going to hurt somebody else next week. Oh, goody. You're going to learn from it. And, and if you learn from it, then you'll do something different next time. The other thing, too, is, I mean, this, this is the other half of it. If you've done something, you've hurt somebody, as a result, they've gotten mad at you. Um, it's not just about, oh, well, what can I learn from that so I don't do that to somebody else next time. That's really important. But there's also, okay, there's a little more suffering in the world than there needs to be. I wonder if there's anything I can do to reduce that. And we know how hard that can be. Well, I know if I went and really apologized, um, they would feel better. I was right. <laughs> I was justified. Why should I have to do that? Yeah. Well, there's, I, I guess, it's, it's pretty easy when you realize that you're, you've been a moron to run back and say, gosh, I'm, I'm sorry. That's, that's relatively easy compared to finding out a week later, what? I said that, and it hurt you? That incidental discovering yeah. it... But you know, say it's something, you don't say to somebody, what? I said something that hurt you? I mean, that's really somewhat disingenuous. It, what you really should be saying is, I can see that what I said hurt you. I didn't mean it that way, but it's obvious to me that it hurt you. Yeah, that's a better way to say it. That, that's not just a better way to say it. No, well, yeah, <laughs> I, I, yeah. That, that, but that's sort of, that's what I meant. Yeah, well, so that, and so that'll produce a better response, and that's your measure, too. If you, you know, if, if you respond, if, if you do that, you'll get a better response than if you do the other. None of this is complicated. None of this requires a lot of faith in magic or mysticism or anything else. It's just plain old stuff that we've all been learning since we were little kids. But we got a little twisted, a little twist in our minds that's been reinforced by a lot of inappropriate social values that keeps us from following the absolute logic of this. Or but maybe we're just clumsy. Sure, maybe we're just clumsy, too. That's, that's fine. But the thing is, you don't have to stay clumsy. 
So, anyway. I'm just trying to point out to you that this is a part of the practice. I mean, why do you think of meditation? Well, I want to be happier. I want my life to be better. That's great. Meditation is going to do that. And I'll talk about how meditation can do that. But here's something else you can do at the same time that uh, is, is going to produce, is also going to produce a very powerful effect. And the sooner you start doing it, the better. Um, there are people in this room, I don't know who they are necessarily, but you're in, in a very difficult relationship. If you practice in this way, and change the way you are, the person you're in a relationship with is going to change. I absolutely guarantee it. And if you do this consistently, you'll reach a point a few years from now where you say, well, I almost trashed that relationship, but this person is now wonderful, and I'm so glad that I have the opportunity to be with them. That's the kind of effect that it can have. So don't, don't, don't underrate it at all. Doesn't mean that for some of you, you're in a difficult relationship, it may be the best thing for you to trash it and move on. But I'm saying until you come to the conclusion that that's the right thing for you to do, then if you do this, it's going to make a huge difference. It's going to make things better. It has the potential to heal everything. So that's really my point. This is every bit as important as sitting down once or twice a day, closing your eyes, and developing stability of attention and mindfulness. It's every bit as important. It's directly related to carrying mindfulness into your life. Those of you who practice meditation and develop mindfulness in meditation, I know you say, how, how do I bring this into my life? I get up in the morning, I intend to be mindful, and then, when I'm getting ready for bed, I realize I wasn't. <laughs> this gives you something to attach your mindfulness to, in a very concrete way. A simple set of precepts. And just... It, it gives you something to... to to use, to guide you, to remind you, to make you aware, help you to be mindful. And of course, if you do that in your life, when you go back and sit down, having practiced mindfulness, uh, if not continuously, at least on and off a number of times during the day, when you go and sit down, your meditation is going to be a lot better too. And it just keeps getting better. Instead of being selfish and taking care of ourselves, that we take care of ourselves and everyone else we're in contact with to the best of our ability. In other words, 
you treat yourself just as well as you would treat somebody else. And that's actually a huge step forward. <coughs> um, even a selfish person has some part of their mind that thinks they're rotten. And that part of their mind comes in pretty heavy at every opportunity it, it can. And a lot of the things, a lot of the ways we treat ourselves, the situations we put ourselves in, things like that. Um, if you could, if you can get to that place of looking at it objectively and realistically, you say, "Well, I wouldn't have done that to somebody else. Why did you do it to yourself?" You know. So it's. I mean, this rule of harmlessness, if we, if we try to find a really good way to state it. It's, it's cause no unnecessary harm to yourself or others. You know, when you say don't create any more suffering in this world than there already needs to be, you're part of it, so it applies equally to you. And you will get to the place of realizing that a whole lot of the things that you thought you needed for yourself, you don't really need that much. There are certain basic things that, yes, we all need. We need food, we need shelter, we need clothing, you know, there's things that we need. But most of us have a much huge, much bigger, huge, longer list of things that we think we need, that we don't really. That if we could ever get to the place of being honest with ourselves, we could, we could realize that we'd be doing, we'd be probably better off without them. I'm not talking about material things. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about taking care on an emotionally, physical, yeah. uh, spiritual level and okay, not good. constantly giving yourself out right. and, and losing. Okay, that is, yeah, yeah, it's exactly the same. Yes, that's good. And that's the same principle that applies. Uh, you know, somebody else needs to walk across a mud puddle and you lay down and let them walk across you. Um, are you are you following the principle we just talked about? Maybe one time and then not. <laughs> well, I, I said one time at the most, but I would question even one time. I mean, you'd be better off being like Sir Walter Raleigh and putting your coat down, right? <laughs> Rather than laying down and letting them walk over you. So, you, you have your emotional needs, and you don't need to cater to other people's emotional needs, especially when it is going to be harmful to you and create suffering for you. There's another factor in this, too. There is, it, it, it's, uh, uh, it's usually called skillful means, but it's, it's wisdom. It's having the wisdom to know sometimes what somebody else wants isn't really the best thing for them, let alone for you. And if somebody has an emotional need, the satisfaction of which is going to cost you in some way, there's a very good chance that, that, that feeding that emotional need is actually going to do as much harm for that person as, as it is any benefit. So you have to you have to look at that, and you have to take it into account. 
That's why this is a practice, when you're allowed to make mistakes. You can, you can give too much of yourself, and then when you realize that you've harmed yourself, you realize that was too much, and this is where I should have stopped. And you can give not enough, and you can reflect afterwards and say, well, I could have given more. And that's the learning process. All of this is a reflection of the meditation process as well. It's all about, I don't know if you can see the similarity, but you sit down and you say, well, okay, I'm going to put my attention on my breath, and something else happens. And so you have to figure out why that's happening and what you can do to change it, and so on and so forth. And the same thing is true of what we were just talking about. You behave in certain ways. And that's something that happens. Your patterns of behavior are no different than the tendency of your mind to want to start thinking about the movie you saw last night when you sit down and meditate. They're, they're these ingrained patterns of behavior that uh, they've come from somewhere, they keep getting reinforced, and unless you do something about them, they will continue to freely go on their own way. And so everything that you do in meditation is kind of like a model for what you're doing in your life. I think it was probably a while ago, but we talked about right speech in terms of lying. Um, and I think you had said something to the effect that the Buddha's policy was the closest you should ever get to lying is omission, and that lying is never justified. I might be totally wrong, but that's how I remembered it. And I was wondering if part of the reason for that uh, isn't so much the harm of lying, but the fact that you're kind of creating more delusion in the world, specifically for somebody else. Um, because, I mean, I know it's something that I take really seriously, especially in like close interpersonal relationships, but it's something that even though I don't do it, in my professional life, I'm tempted a lot, and it even seems like skillful means in certain situations. So I'm wondering if it's the case, I mean, if you would agree just fundamentally that lying of any kind, um, even subtle deception where you imply something that isn't overtly a lie, but leads somebody to a conclusion that's a lie, if that's always wrong, if that's because it creates more delusion in the world, um, and if there's ever a reason through skillful means to lie. An excellent question. A good opportunity to make something clear. Okay, is, is, is taking lying as an example, is that something that it's always wrong to do, you should never do? So I'll ask you. Okay, imagine. Here you are in your apartment in Berlin. It's 1941. These, this, uh, family of Jews has locked it, knocked on your door in a panic and you've ushered them into your bedroom and 15 minutes later the Gestapo knocks on the door and says, are they in here? Okay. What's your answer? <laughs> well, I have to think about that one. Have well, <laughs> <laughs> well, you see, that's what's really good about that is is. The idea isn't that lying 
is what's right or wrong. It's doing anything that unnecessarily increases the amount of, uh, of pain and suffering in the world. That's what determines the rightness or wrongness. And so, you know, I'm sure those poor Gestapo officers are going to get scolded and maybe one of them's even going to get demoted because they didn't catch these people that you've got in your bedroom. So you created some harm in the world, but on the net, <laughs> that's the criteria. Now, the point is that it takes a lot of skill to be able to look at your reasons, because most situations aren't that clear. It takes a lot of skill to look at your reasons for the lie that you're telling. And discern that it's actually the right thing to do in this case. Because a large percentage of the time, you're telling there's two lies involved. There's the lie that you're going to tell somebody else, and there's a lie that you tell to yourself about why this is the right thing to do. So yeah, no, it's not it's not the case that it's that there's any particular action that is de facto, in and of itself, incontestably, always wrong. Or always right. It's, you have to think in terms of the consequences that it's going to have. And that's the criteria. That's, that's what's so lovely about this way of approaching things, is you have a single, simple, easy to understand, and easy to agree upon principle that there's enough suffering in the world already. So, you know, whatever I do, try to make sure it's something that, that, it, 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 that if I can avoid it, doesn't increase the net suffering in the world more than, more than it already has to. Go ahead. If one were to live a completely virtuous life, would it be necessary to meditate? If you were to live a completely virtuous life? Or would the entire life, the, would the entire waking moment become a meditation? Well, uh, now, in a sense, you, you would be, you, your, your life would become a meditation because your practice of virtue would, you know, uh, it, it would be all-encompassing. You'd have to have a lot of mindfulness. <clears throat> Uh, and the, it depends on what your purpose is in meditating. If your purpose is to become awakened, you could probably become awakened through the practice of virtue. But I would I, I, I would guess that the odds against that happening before you die are much higher than if you combine meditation and study with your practice of virtue. Not that it, well, yeah, and that's it. The, the ultimate goal of this path of uh, spiritual awakening is something that doesn't rely on any one method. All methods are just ways of increasing the likelihood of it happening. Okay. Now, that depends on the other things that you wanted to get from meditation. If you wanted to be uh, have a lot more inner peace, you're going to get that at least as quickly through practicing virtue as you are through practicing meditation. But there are other things that you're not going to get. 
So that's, that's, the, that's the idea. They all work together. Virtue would get you there just as easily as meditation. And I just teach virtue because actually it would probably have more, more beneficial ramifications to more people. But I don't think, uh, I, I think this is better to teach, teach them all together. For one thing, I think that you would not have much success practicing virtue by itself. I think there's probably a number of people in this room who would attest to the fact that really practicing virtue is hard and that you really need the skills that come from meditation in order to do it. So in a way, meditation serves to practice virtue, but virtue practice serves to practice meditation as well. They go together. <coughs>